There's a couple reasons of being in the Bay Area. Number one, today especially, it's more and more difficult. But for people who've been doing this for maybe more than three, four, five, six, ten years, Bay Area has been an incredible place. It's one of the strongest markets in the entire world. And even going further, and let's say you're not finding growth, we went through the Great Recession and thinking about the downturns. Even if you're not growing a lot or making compounding your money in the next couple of years, you're not going to be losing a ton just because of the core nature of the market. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Penn, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Eric Wang. Eric is the founder of Rev Projects and focuses on purchasing commercial buildings in the Bay Area. In this episode, Eric will teach us how to finance large commercial projects, how to grow an investor base, and will even give us a roadmap for those who are interested in investing in commercial buildings in the Bay Area as well. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy! All right, Eric, thanks for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Eric Wang. I am a developer, operator, general partner, whatever you want to call it, on middle market commercial real estate projects. So middle market around 5, 10, 15, 20 million dollar projects and multifamily and office. And I started this company, Rev Projects, maybe about five years ago, almost five years ago. And really to just get deep into products, be hands-on and act as a developer on my own and, and just really revitalize these buildings, really to change these buildings, you know, create something new out of something old, you know, uh, like a, what a lot of developers do, find a problem and find a need in the market. And so that's what I wanted to do and target areas that I really care about. I've been in the East Bay for a long time. I lived there for 15 years. I live in San Francisco now. But my projects have all been in the East Bay so far and focus on the Bay Area. And yeah, that's just a little bit of where I'm at today. Yeah, broad overview. That's super exciting because most people who do commercial projects are usually syndicating stuff all across the United States. And most people don't actually do stuff here in the Bay Area because they say the numbers don't work, right? How do you make the numbers work? Yeah, right, right. So there's a couple reasons of being in the Bay Area. I mean, number one, I mean, yeah, today, especially, it's more and more difficult. And But, you know, for people who've been doing this for maybe more than three, four, five, six, ten years, you know, Bay Area has been an incredible place. It's one of the strongest markets in the entire world. So that's one reason to be in the Bay Area. And even going further, and let's say you're not finding growth, you know, we got we went through the Great Recession and thinking about the downturns, you know, even if you're not growing a lot or making, you know, compounding your money in the next couple of years, you're not going to be losing a ton just because of the, the core nature of the market. So there is something to be said about, well, let's look at the other side of the coin when things don't go so well. Another 
aspect of me staying in the Bay Area is that I want to be close to my projects. I want to be hands-on on my projects. I want to be, you know, really knee-deep and and on-site and pointing at problems, looking at problems. And not that you can't do that with projects out of state, but it's also a personal preference. You know, I don't want to be on an airplane flying back and forth. And I think there's some people that are more comfortable with that. And, you know, if I think if I was younger, I'd definitely flying around a lot more. You know, I got married a few years ago and now I just want to be home with my wife and, and enjoy where we live. And so there's some personal decisions that have been made there about being close to my projects, being hands-on, not being on an airplane and being in a good market. And, and yes, being challenged to search harder and harder for opportunities where, yeah, maybe you're not getting the market momentum behind you. But if you put in the sweat, you put in the effort and you have some skills, knowledge and experience, then you can still make a project work. And yeah, and I understand what people are saying. Yeah, it might be difficult. And maybe some of your listeners, you know, just jumping in. And yeah, I encourage them if you're willing to really study other markets, you know, go out and do that. But it is also important to know the market that you're in and maybe find little niches here or there. So, yeah. Got it. And are you buying things for like a cash flow play or is it more like you just hold on to it with a bridge loan and then in a couple of years you renovate it and then sell it off for a higher profit? Yeah, earlier on, my projects were meant to really get in, do the work and something that's really value add, get in and something that I know I can execute on, something I know that the cash flow will change and grow. And so those were shorter term projects. Uh, The first project was Mother's Cookies Loft. It was a live work loft. It was very clear. It was under managed. There's a lot more potential in there. We came in there, these old finishes that were built more for kind of the starving artist type with giant, these were giant units. And so changing them to to really meet the market where cleaned it up, really had really nice finishes. And so there's, we knew clearly what we needed to do there. And once that was done, we could extract the value. And so, and that was really important for me early on to show that value was created for my investors. And that final day, and I was just thinking about that earlier, the day that I returned that check to each of the investors and saying, you know, this is a job well done and it's complete, you know, that feels good for an investor, especially early on. And so, you know, now I have a little bit more flexibility. I don't necessarily need to round trip and get in and get out. And, you know, my second project, the uh, research and development R&D building next to Tesla's factory was still short term. And it was very clear, we need to renovate that thing, lease up, sell it. But the latest project, and more recently, I've been able to focus on things that are more medium to longer term. And this uh, student housing deal in Berkeley, it's just a block from Berkeley. And it's such a great location. And you just wonder, do you ever want to sell that? It's going to create great cash flow at some point. And, you know, the area is only going to be supply constrained with more students coming in. It's a great university. And so that one, we're leaning towards longer term. So now I have a little bit more flexibility and I just tackle that question on a deal by deal basis. You know, what needs to be done and, you know, what do we feel about the long-term prospects of this neighborhood and then make that decision when it comes. For that Berkeley project, I'm assuming it's a multifamily deal. Yeah. Do you have any issues with rent control and dealing with the previous tenants? Right, right. So it's a student. I mean, it's technically multifamily. It's technically regular residential, just like in Berkeley, like many of the apartments. But they're rooms, right? So they're not even studios. It's almost like a dorm room. It used to be a hotel. So it doesn't have kitchens. or It's shared bathrooms. So we're adding a kitchen to the building. We're redeveloping the building. But it is essentially student housing because 
these SROs or single room occupancy buildings in San Francisco or Oakland, you know, they're kind of beat up hotels. But if it's next directly next to the university, obviously you have thousands of students that need housing. And so it, it ends up being like a dorm, basically a dormitory. So we treat it, we very much treat it like student housing. And so on that question with rent control, yeah, rent control has always been difficult to get in and work with projects. And so my first project was not rent control. That was one of the primary reasons that Live Work Loft decided to get in because we knew we could get in and renovate those units. The student housing building, because students by nature, they're there for a year, a couple of years, they might move in with some other friends or, you know, obviously graduate. There's a ton of turnover in these units. So though it is rent controlled in the nine months that we've owned this building, there have already been 52 units that have been renovated out of the 120. And that is all due to natural turnover. I mean, these students, for whatever reason, they're graduating, they're moving on, they're moving in with friends or people find our building, new people move into the building just for a variety of reasons. Uh, A small dorm room is not necessarily fit for you know, long-term residency. So that's just one of the reasons that this building was in particular, I felt we, like I said, get in, can I do the work? Can I get in and execute, you know, and when is that going to happen? And that's not true of a lot of rent controlled buildings. You know, you never know what, what you're going to be able to do, you know, a year from now, two years, three years from now, whenever that may be. And basically because you bought it when it was still a hotel, there was obviously no tenants that were already there to kick out. So to be clear, it was already an operating building. There's a lot of students living in it and it was converted from a hotel to a resident long time ago, but it was just very poorly managed. There was a master tenant, just this individual who managed all the residential upstairs and and he just you know managed it for occupancy and didn't really make much effort to invest a dollar anywhere throughout the building and really didn't have much of an incentive to because he was on this master lease. And so it's turning around the residential portion and also there's retail, there's six units of retail on the ground floor. It's actually very valuable retail as a percentage of the building. And so, yeah, I think it was already occupied by students, but now we're just really cleaning it up. I mean, even the students appreciate many of the changes that we're making in the building and yeah, just making it a better situation for the students. How did you find this property? This property, you know, again, relationships, I mean, you probably heard this many times before and and you know yourself, relationships are very important. And so the broker that sold my first project, the Live Work Loft project, you know, he marketed it, sold it for me. So we, you know, obviously stayed in touch and he brought this deal to me off market before the election. There's election in 2018. And, you know, there's a lot of concerns about kind of the tighter rent control restrictions. And I said, you know, I'll go after this. You know, the rent control at that time, Prop 10 in California didn't pass. And so, you know, I guess you would consider it a risk at that time. But, you know, I thought it was a great location. And, you know, either way, we'll be able to start renovating these things. And so I made an offer and, you know, the seller was willing to accept that offer even prior to the election and allow me to take hold of the property. And so, yeah. I got an early look at it and just moved fast and moved quick. And, you know, the broker knew me, knew my experience of that I would close on this thing and that I was, I would sit, do what I would say, what I said, and was true to my word. So, yeah. So how do you have the confidence to put in, you know, a significant amount of money in a project like this? Do you have like a specific like target return that you're looking for for each project? 
Yeah, you know, I tend to go a little bit more along. Obviously, you got to look at the numbers. Obviously, you got to study that and analyze that. But, you know, I personally, I go a lot with gut feel and just knowing that I could get in there because I'm looking at, you know, you're looking at dozens or hundreds of property, you know, prospective properties, potential acquisitions. And, you you know, I pass on a lot of stuff and I really abide by that Warren Buffett kind of aphorism where it's like in baseball, you know, you let a lot of pitches come by, but the one that you really know you can hit it out of the park, the one you feel good about, you know, that's the one you really chase after. So, you know, after you look at a bunch of deals and you feel like, wow, that's not that interesting after, and then you find one that is, it feels pretty different, you know, and that's when you have the confidence so how do you have that? I mean, yeah, part of how is you look at a lot of deals, you know, it's like, well, you know, how do you become a better painter? How do you become a better baseball hitter? <laughs> you know, just you, you look at a lot of deals, you, you do it a lot, you know, and then eventually one of them you really feel good about. And like, you know what, I, because I've seen enough, you just feel good about moving forward. That makes sense. And how do you go about structuring the financing for a project like this? This project, and especially some of my earlier projects, a little different. I had some broker, loan brokers who really just put the project out on the market. And it, I think it was important to me to find, you know, the right lending relationships. And early on, I think the brokers are very helpful. And then once you set up these lending relationships and you've done one or two deals, and especially if you've been successful, the same thing with investors. Well, let's do another deal. So these are all first time relationships. So, you know, I had a good loan fund that competitive rates for a project like this, which was a little bit funkier because it was rooms, it wasn't traditional housing, and but it was still a good market. And so I think they got the deal and you know, they understood that, you know, it, this will always be leased by by the students, the, the university is not going away. And, you know, so all of the investment metrics and things I pitched to the investors, they understood that. And so, you know, just broadly marketed it and found a lender, a reputable lender that really understood it and was willing to make the loan. Cool. And can we talk about loan terms in terms of like, how much are they expecting you to put down for down payment? What do they need for your like DSER? Do they even care about that? And how long is a loan for? Is it seven years or is it, you know, 30 years? Right. So let's say in the student housing deal in particular, this was kind of like a construction loan because there was a lot budgeted to go in the building. I think we have about a couple million budgeted to spend throughout the building. I mean, that includes all the 120 units that you're renovating, but also, you know, we're building a kitchen, we're redoing the lobby. So a variety of things throughout the building. And so it's kind of a construction loan. We'll draw down on those proceeds. The rate is floating. Since I had the loan, the rate floated down. I mean, of course, it can always float back up, but it's going to be initial term of about two years because we felt like that was the appropriate term. You know, there's going to be a lot of students, even in just two years, you're going to have a lot of students coming in and out of this thing in two years. And as so far, we've seen, you know, that's happening. 52 units have been renovated. So that was the term, the length of term. And then we'll see in a couple of years what to do beyond that. Um, most likely we'll put more medium to longer term financing on it and refinance it. But uh, yeah, those are the basic terms. And what did they expect for down payment? In this case, what was it? I think it was roughly 35, 30, 35% down payment of the initial of the loan to cost. I think it's going to be closer to 25 to 30 of the 
loan to cost because you know you're funding a lot you know this that couple million i mentioned going forward so but i think the value will be you know obviously much higher than the actual cost that we get to the cost of our deal yeah that's roughly the leverage so nothing too crazy i think that's something pretty average for a deal like this mm-hmm. and do they start charging you interest on the construction loan day one or only after they pay you out for your draw they charge on whatever you acquired and then whatever you have in your balance. So then if you're adding to your balance, then they start charging interest on that. So when you're drawing on the loan, then that adds to the balance and that then there's interest on that new balance every month or every period. Mm-hmm. And for people who don't know what draws are, do you want to explain how construction loans work? Yeah, construction loan draws, they give you upfront money to acquire the property, obviously, but then they know that there is work to be done throughout the building and they create and design a budget with them based off estimates or bids. And then you make a loan draw request to the lender once some of the work has been done. And let's say out of the couple million, let's say it's, you know, hundred thousand, you know, whatever it is. And then they review it and then they fund the draw. So they fund it by funding your account. And that's after you have made progress. And if it's a really big part of the project, they may even have to inspect it. But in this case, it's an existing building. I mean, there's examples of ground up construction where, you know, they have third parties, you know, if you're building an apartment ground up, they have third parties that will actually be on site and inspect and make sure you're doing everything to code. And, you know, they're not funding something that's wacky or uh, not done right or not done to code. And then they fund those costs. It's basically like a reimbursement program. Yeah, like that. But it's obviously it's adding to your loan balance. You're borrowing. It is borrowed funds. You're going to have to pay it back one day. It's just you're using those funds to build the project. Yeah, that makes sense. And what are you doing for that 35% that you need to put out for down payment? Yeah, so for me personally, I've gone the route of still working with high net worth individuals and entities and trusts and who invest with me. And so, um, you know, my investor base has just grown organically. You know, I don't do a ton of marketing. It's just, you know, you do a good deal, you make investors money and they're pretty happy with that. You know, nobody's unhappy with that. And they tell some of their friends and decide to come in for maybe even more equity on the next deal. And just being honest and truthful with how the deal is running, any problems with the deal, the successes, reporting regularly, communication, and that's how to grow the investor base. And that's how it has grown over the course of these several projects. And so now, you know, a lot of great people, I I love the investors that I meet with and they love being able to see the projects. I'll walk through them and see them face to face and talk about anything they want to know about the projects and disclose the financials to them. And so we'll have a new investment platform set up for them where they can see all the deals, their returns, all the reports, documents, K-1s and everything. So, Yeah, I've raised money just that way, just by building good relationships and letting them grow on their own. And what about for your first few deals when you didn't really have that reputation? What did you do for that? Yeah, yeah. First few deals. So I do have to preface this with, you know, I did come from a real estate background, so I knew people in the industry. And so I had a couple colleagues, but really it wasn't a lot. You know, the first deal was smaller and I had a couple colleagues support me. You know, they invested. So that was nice. Had some family uh, invest. That was nice. And then even to my surprise back then, I had a few investors which were through like different CPAs and lawyers, but they didn't know me, these investors, their connections through other people, but they took a risk on me and they jumped in 
And they, you know, saw who I was and saw the project and never done a deal with me. And they jumped in and believed in me. And so I, you know, I really appreciate that from day one. I really remember those people. I stay in contact with them. I, you know, they're the first ones on the list that I call whenever I see something. And, you know, I, I really appreciate and respect them for that. And I treat them well because they did make that jump for me. And now obviously it's grown and now there's more of a track record that I can point to. And, but those first few, uh, you know, I really appreciate kind of what they did early on with me. That's great. And how many investors do you usually have in a deal? So first one, it was just a handful. So like I was describing, you know, a few colleagues, few friends, few new investors who trusted in me. I don't know. That was like six, seven, something like that. Seven, something like that. The second deal, you know, obviously the first deal did really well. Second deal, it just grew organically. If people think, oh, you know, what was this guy doing? What are some of these projects? These are really interesting. And so that turned into 25 investors pretty quickly. And then I would say uh, after that completion of that deal, which I just sold in November, that turned around and performed well, returned money to investors. And But even in the midst of that deal, I was raising money for my third deal, but they had seen my communication. Again, the communication aspect of how I was operating these deals. That was enough to show you know investors that I was trying to do right by them and make good decisions. And so my third deal, the Spectre Southside, the student housing deal, that turned into almost 50, 55 investors. I mean, so you know these jumps in numbers of people who believe in me and my work, I mean, it's just a natural reflection of what the outcome was and also the process, you know, just being nice to investors and treating them well. Yeah, that's awesome. And I imagine, you know, working with 50 investors is pretty difficult. Do you have a team behind you or is it just you by yourself? I have a uh, intern who's now kind of part-time with me that helps out a lot with that, you know, some of the softer side of things, also the numbers, but the uh, financial projections as well as my website, as well as social media stuff, but, and getting stuff uh, ready for the investors. So one thing I would say about that, is it's all people, right? And I really like meeting and talking with the people. These investors, you know, maybe they're not necessarily real estate professionals, but maybe, or maybe some of them are actually. So that's a decent group of people. Some of them are tech people. Some of them have all different types of backgrounds. And I really like talking with them. So if there are 50 of them, hey, that just keeps my life interesting. I think it'll be unsustainable at some point in the future. But as of today, I really like talking to all of them. I really like, you know, even if it is just little notes here or there, but sometimes good phone calls or sometimes, you know, tour at the property. And I like that because they get to learn about me and the investment and how that's doing. But also I get to learn about some of the things that they're doing. You know, they get to work on really cool tech companies. They get to work on their own businesses. They get to in restaurant and retail and finance. And so that's a fun part for me. And I think there are some operators, even more institutional style operators who actually have raised money from larger funds, maybe similar things that I do, but work with funds. You know, they don't want to deal with that. They don't want to meet those people. They want one person. They want one asset manager of that fund who's funding them the check and that's the one call that they make and that's the relationship that they build and the dinner that they take out to. So that's different. And so I just, I like where I'm at right now and that might change the future. I'm looking into raising money with funds as well in the future and outside of individuals. And I think that'll be part of the plan going forward. But today there's also a group of investors who really, you know, just want to know that everything's okay and they read the report and that's it. That's all they need. You know, it's not a large time commitment from me and, you know, because that's all they need. So I just give them updates and that's sufficient for them. But others, I like to have conversations. So it depends. You know, I think it's really inspiring to hear that you're basically a one-man show because you're dealing with multi-multi-million dollar projects. And for most of us, we're thinking that if I want to be like a kind of a solo entrepreneur, 
I had to start something small, like maybe single family homes or maybe like a fourplex. Do you want to talk about your progression from going from, you know, a full-time employee to doing real estate investing? Yeah, I'll talk about that. But I have a couple comments on that, which is, you know, one, it's really a decision that you make as a developer or business owner. You can go any direction you want. You know, it's a blank slate. And so what I mean by that is you can work with a partner and you can start working with funds and raising money for funds. You and your partner could be working on 10 projects. I choose to work on fewer projects, ones that I really care about. So I don't do a ton of deals every year. And, you know, I know some other operators that are out there and they've raised a ton of money and they go even their own funds. So they work, they raise money from funds and they've created their own investment fund, investment vehicle, and they have millions of dollars or whatever it is, maybe a large amount of money. And they got to do stuff with that. They can't sit and stare at it. You know, it's a fund. It's And so I decided not to do that. That's a personal decision that I've made. And I, yeah, as a solopreneur, obviously I can't do 10, 20 projects, you know, all the acquisitions that you need to do to support that fund. But again, that's a decision that you choose to make. And many people have gone other ways. And I think that's great. I love hearing about what they're doing. And I support what they're doing. And But I think for your listeners, you got to remember, there's not one way of going about things. There's many, many different ways. And eventually, you have to choose and decide which way you want to go. Do you want to work on middle market stuff? Do you want to work what product type do you want? Do you want to work with a partner, which is like getting into a marriage and all the decisions? You know, I decided not to work with a partner. I've decided to contract out all my work. I've decided to work with, you know, architects and third party construction and property management. I'm acting as more of a conductor of the orchestra, whereas maybe other groups as they grow and develop, they bring all that in-house. You know, some of them are much more... You know, maybe they're doing more sophisticated projects, but they bring that, they have all their engineering teams and architect teams all in-house. So what do you want to do? You know, that's the question that, you know, you figure out along the way. And, you know, early on, I thought maybe I, you know, I came from the institutional world. I, you know, maybe I got to be this big company and maybe I got to start working with these high net worth, more more like uh, families and maybe even other funds. And maybe I got to be working on, you know, but that's their game. And you just got to stay in your own lane. You know, that run your own race and pursue the market and niche that you want, because that's you. Other people are doing their thing. They're doing industrial. They're doing this product. So that's my comment on that. But then your question about, yeah, my kind of development and how I came to those decisions and my background. So, yeah, I think I'm fortunate that I came from an institutional real estate background. So these are professional investors who invest and properties that are 50 million, $100 million size. You know, my, the largest deal that I worked on, the last one that I worked on was $700 million in size. It was the tallest tower in Seattle, the Columbia Tower. And that is where I cut my teeth and learned, you know, how do professionals do research, evaluate markets, raise money from, you know, large state funds like, you know, like CalPERS? How do they present material? Even just the presentation, how do you communicate? to investors? How do you create reports that really have the core information in a good presentable format? How do you create offering memorandums? And how do you how do you analyze these projects and break it down and present it? And so it was a much more polished world over there. And then so when I stepped into the middle market side, I think it's a very different world. It is truly very different. You know, these are maybe five, 10, 20 million dollar deals. And some of them are owned by high net worth individuals and still kind of maybe run kind of still mom and pop, even though they should be run more professionally. And so, you know, I took a lot of that experience. I mean, your original question, my progression was from learning 
I treated that those jobs as learning opportunities. You know, early on, I, you know, maybe the first year on the job, I mean, I wasn't sure if I was going to be an entrepreneur or what, whatever I was going to do. But, you know, later on, I realized, you know, this is a learning opportunity. And this is my classroom before I become an entrepreneur. You know, and it was very necessary for me. I really appreciate all the colleagues and bosses that I've had in the past. And they're great, very talented and bright. And I learned a lot from them, from the companies. And this is a consideration for some of your listeners. You know, I know a lot of people are really gung-ho about getting into their first deal and doing stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, what longevity of your business or what you're able to do is skills, knowledge, and experience. And what a great way to gain that from other people who have been doing it for decades or companies who have been doing it for a hundred years, you know, just to learn from them. And then if you truly are entrepreneurial, treat that as a classroom. Yeah, you're working for somebody else and maybe you don't want to do that for forever. But then in that case, treat it as one of the steps of being an entrepreneur. And later on, I started realizing that more and more, this is preparation for when I make the jump. Yeah, and it's really cool when you can have your W-2 basically pay for your education. Exactly. And it makes sense now why, you know, your $10 million projects don't scare you when your previous job you're working at $700 million projects. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So it's preparation. Yeah, you're right on that. And that's why you didn't just start with single family homes, right? You were already comfortable with the commercial side. You knew how basically everything worked. Now you just take that and leverage it for a smaller project. Now, a quick comment on what you just said there, which is that, yeah, I wasn't working on single family homes, but you know, when you're just starting out, even if I did come from a billion dollar fund or whatever it is, you know, some people made the jump and they had great connections and yeah, they're ready to get working, you know, maybe almost institutional size deals. And that, you know, that's great. And that's because they have maybe even more years of experience and more connections and all that. But, you know, when I made the jump, I didn't have a big ego about things. I was still young and I didn't need to do something fancy off the bat. I needed to do good deals, and I need to execute and I need to learn even more from my work. And so when I made the jump, you know, I'd be willing to do a million dollar duplex this or that or whatever or house or whatever. I'd be willing to do that. I think that one problem I see with, and again, maybe some of your listeners may not see this, but some of the institutional guys I see wanting to jump off, start their own business, you know, they want to do the big thing right off the bat. You know, they were just working on a hundred million dollar deal. So this next deal, yeah, how about let's call it 50. Let's do 50. That's a good starting point, you know, but they can't do it. You know, just, you're just a one man show or you, you and your partner, you know, just you're a small company, you know? So, and that's really hurting them. I think me, I do have an ego about a lot of stuff, but I, I remember early on, I didn't have an ego about this. I said, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll do a deal. I want to do a good deal. And I just want to do something. I want to get some work done. If I was going to do a million dollar deal, that's fine. Now, fortunately, or by providence or by God's grace, my first project was like $7 million deals, much larger than I thought I was going to do. Now, that you can't predict, okay? So that just all worked out well, and, and there's some luck and fruition, and, and of course, a little work getting out there. But my point is, going back to that point, which is that I didn't you know force the need to do something big, fancy, sexy off the bat. And I just wanted to grow and learn from there. How are people giving you $7 million deals when you've never done a deal by yourself? Oh, that's a good question. You should ask the uh, seller at that time. I don't know, actually. So there were on that first deal, a couple factors. Number one, it was marketed deal. I don't think it was well marketed. You know, I don't think it was very broad. I don't think it was professionally marketed. So I think there is a factor. And I came across the deal. A friend brought it to my attention. He actually invested in the deal as well. So that's number one. Number two, 
This is a uh, middle of the decade, 2015, Oakland. If you're familiar with Oakland, Lake Merritt was blowing up already by then, or more and more attention around Lake Merritt, you know, nice area around the lake. And, and just outside of that east of the lake, I think it was just a sleepy neighborhood that people were just not paying attention to yet. And I think they just weren't, I mean, Oakland was already just, you know, Oakland was starting to get hot, but, you know, maybe core downtown or uptown Oakland or, you know, Lake Merritt and some of these nicer areas. But Oakland was still up and coming and this sleepy neighborhood out just outside of that. And that's one thing I wanted to focus on was the path of growth. There are deals where you can buy its core. It's already the attention is there. But you're paying a premium for that and you're not necessarily in the path. I want to be in the path of growth. What's the next step beyond that just outside? And, and I think this neighborhood was. And now looking back, I mean, now it's five years later, investors have gone way deeper into deep East Oakland and all sorts of neighborhoods beyond this neighborhood. So obviously it was in the path of growth. And so I think I was able to get a hold on of that. And, you know, especially early on, it's just leveraging. And again, I do consider myself being in a privileged position in this coming from the real estate background. So I'm really thankful. And I try to remember that, you know, this was given to me some of this experience and knowledge. So not all of your listeners have this, but, you know, so I tried to leverage some of my real estate background and, and some of my personal investments and just say, hey, you know, I'll get this done. And yeah, the money's coming. Don't worry. I'll, I'll raise the money and you know, and I'll close. And But it was stressful. I, I mean, let me be honest, you know, that first deal, uh, I remember it was a ton of stress. Will I be able to close this thing? And I thought the deal was going to die. I didn't know if I was going to raise enough money. A friend jumped in at the last second for the last piece of equity, and, and that really closed it out. And I could feel confident closing it at the end of the year. So got it done. So a little bit of hard work, a little bit of background and experience and knowledge, a little bit of friends and a little bit of market conditions. And so I don't know. There's just a lot of stuff that came into why I was able to get that deal and, and get started. And when you were first getting started, did you start cold calling other brokers to have them send you leads? Or how were you out there marketing that you're now open for business? Yeah, I did. I should have done that a little bit more, I think. But, you know, I was really so focused on that first deal and I was excited about it and, and wanting to it to be a success. And yeah, so I started reaching out to more brokers. And once they saw that I bought that deal, you know, they knew I was serious and I, I'll get things done. So I early on, it was slow. I probably could have spent more time doing that and made it a priority. But I prefer, I think maybe you've seen from this conversation to keep things organic. You know, I'm not trying to do overnight growth and you know, a million deals a year and market to a ton of investors. And I try to keep things more organic. So the investors grew naturally. The next deal came along naturally. So that's been kind of my MO as I've operated. And did you quit your job like before this happened or do you only quit after you got this deal in contract? I took the risk by quitting my job before anything. So I didn't have much of anything except for some real estate experience. I mean, some good experience, but didn't have much of anything. And that was a risk. But my approach, and this is also for your listeners, you know, when they come to these decisions of making the jump, and a lot of even real estate entrepreneurs, even now they're doing pretty well, but they've asked me about this question of when to make that jump. And I mean, number one, I truly believe if using the analogy of being on a boat and leaving, setting sail for new land, you got to leave the land behind you leave the sight of the land behind you before you can see the land in front of you. You have to be out in the open ocean for a little bit and feel a little seasick and feel a little uncomfortable before something happens. And so that's, I believe that. And I did that 
And, you know, there's a lot of factors. I mean, I had savings, so I knew I'd be okay. Worst case scenario, if I didn't find a deal, I wasn't doing anything, I I wasn't getting a project done, I was a complete failure. What's the worst case scenario? I go back and work for another real estate company. I mean, that was the worst case scenario. I mean, to me, I was like, that's the worst case scenario. Man, I'll take it. It's not bad, you know? And then, yeah, I, I quit my job. And for a few months there, I was figuring out a strategy and what I want to do and getting out there touring deals. And yeah, just made one work eventually. So again, for all the reasons I said before, whatever it was, providence or luck or experience or whatever it was, I got started. And you say it was a broker that gave you this deal, right? Yeah, it was marketed. It was technically marketed. Yeah. But I didn't know that broker before. Okay. So you just happen to see it and then you're like, I want to buy it and you happen to be the winning offer. Right. You know, a little negotiation, you know, some back and forth, but you know, yeah, I negotiated to get the, get the offer. But yeah, yeah, that I happened to be the one coming out with it. And what does your day-to-day schedule look like before you had success and even now that you're actually doing um, the actual business? Yeah, sure. It's different. You know, early on, let's just talk about those first few months. First few months is really getting out there, talking with people, talking with potential investors, talking with finding out what's happening in the market, looking at deals, what what could I possibly do? And it's a very open kind of creative process of just trying to build something. Once you have a deal, obviously, then you're working, right? You know, then you're working on the deal. And that's what I really truly believe my work is, is the value add component. You know, ultimately, you know, what is my job? You know, my job is to take projects and create something new out of them or create something better or change and grow and and find a solution for them. And and so that's the real work. So, you know, I bought that first deal and get get to work on it and find, execute the strategy. So that then your day becomes more of working with the contractors and a little bit of financing stuff and bidding out stuff and getting in and out of the project. And I approach this very hands-on. I asset manage my deals. I project manage my deals. I, I'm very hands-on with my projects. So... The next deal, you know, now you're doing another deal and you're doing the same thing. And now you're dealing with more investors. Now you're raising money and now you're building up relationships for the future and getting yourself out there for the next deal. So I'm continually talking to people about some of these projects and when new opportunities come available, when I identify something, you know, every once in a while, I identify something that I feel like I care about and I'm going to put my own personal capital behind alongside yours and really going to go after it. And I'll let you know when that day comes. And so there's part of my day is dedicated to that. And then, yeah, so fine. You know, and then now, now more recently, after I sold that last deal, that is freed up a little bit of time. And now more recently, I'm going to have a new remodeled website. So a new website and I could do conversations like these with you on here on this podcast and uh, so that's been fun. And think about some of the softer stuff like, uh, should I be doing a little bit more, you know, social media at least? I'm not going to do like broad marketing, but, you know, just keeping people updated like, hey, I'm doing stuff over here and, you know, I exist and Rev Projects has uh, completed a few good deals. So yeah, some of the softer stuff now. Yeah. So that's what the day looks like. Cool. And how are you finding your construction crew to, you know, manage a project as big as yours? You know, there are definitely construction groups and GCs out there that do this type of stuff. Some of them specifically do multifamily, like on student housing. And, you know, these are simpler finishes in the student housing deal. And so the problem is, yeah, finding them and getting them to respond to you and getting them to give you the time of day and building good relationships. But it's the same thing as, you know, how do you find investors? How do you find deals? Well, you got to get up. How do you find good construction? Well, you got to kind of meet with them and see the work that they've done. And, and so I, you know, I bid out stuff. And now I have a crew that's working now pretty automatic now going th- ripping through all the units in the Berkeley deal. 
And so they're on cruise control, but on future projects and even on that project, but future projects, what finding the right crews and working with, yeah, contractors is hard to come. It's a busy area. There's a lot of projects happening out there. It's expensive now. Construction costs are really expensive. So, you know, everything's difficult. So you're basically going on Yelp and just seeing who is available for this kind of project? So maybe Yelp, but actually really it's working, talking with other real estate groups and other architects and saying, hey, you know what? Hey, architect number one, how, you know, what crews have you worked with? Or hey, developer number one, you know, some of my friends who's worked well with you and interviewing them and, and seeing if they have the time to do stuff. And yeah, so it's a lot of referrals and working with experienced developers and seeing what, what they've done. And, you know, once you're in the market and once you know a few people, then it's just a web that builds on itself. So hopefully, you know, you don't have to start from scratch, but you at least start with some referrals and, and build from there. Cool. And going back to your first project, you know, you purchased it when it was pretty, you know, not well managed, and then you updated it and you increased the net operating income, and then you sold it eventually to someone else. You know, like I was wondering, what's the justification for someone to purchase a building in Oakland or San Francisco when the cap rates are relatively low, like, you know, three or four cap? First of all, people are buying things for different reasons. You know, I mean, I'm we're developers and we're, you know, creating and building, you know, we want the upside and this, but that's other people want different things and they just want to place some capital somewhere. They're in a 1031 exchange and they've held this other deal for a long time and they want to be out of that market. They just want to move it around. So they really need a deal. So now they're putting something in there and, and they're holding it. They just want cash flow. And even if it's not a ton, you know, just a safe area now or now becoming more and more safe because of the Bay Area. And, and again, to my earlier point, you know, maybe you just want to be in Bay Area just because of whatever turbulence you may have in the near future. I don't, whenever that may be, I don't know. And that's what they want, you know, but when I bought it, I wanted something different. My goal and target was to renovate, create, develop, and get a return off that. What ended up happening, though, is we got through a majority of the building. And to make it really sellable, you have a lot more of those developer types than just the 1031 that comes along and wants to play some cash. So we left some what they call meat on the bone, a little bit of upside, a little bit of value add that could be still done through more of the units in the building. And another developer saw that and said, you know, yeah, you can, it's a good deal, kind of safer place, but we can, you know, still gain a little bit more cash flow out of it. So, you know, they treated both ways a little bit and it was still a good outcome for us once I returned money to investors. So yeah, it just depends on who the buyer is and the situation. So it depends. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, there are some people out there who just have millions and millions of dollars and they need to put to work somewhere. Yeah. And investing in the Bay Area is relatively safe. You know, you're not three cap. Yes. Yeah, I see it all the time. You know, I see flyers for like all these apartment buildings in San Francisco, you know, core area and really expensive, like non-existent cap rates. But, you know, why are they buying it? You know, they just want to park some money and you know, it's a safe place. And yeah, maybe you're getting a return better than bonds. And yeah, that's all they care about. You know, they could be in bonds or something. So, yeah, it's different reasons. That makes sense. So you have a very inspiring story. And I'm pretty sure a lot of people who listen to this podcast want to be you in the future. If you were to give someone like a roadmap or you know, theoretical roadmap, and let's say they're in their mid-20s, early 30s, and they want to be where you're at in 10 years, what kind of pathway would you give to them? Right, right. So, you know, my background, again, through privilege or luck or whatever have you, I got to work at some institutional real estate firms, some of the largest asset managers, you know, prudential real estate investors that, you know, they're like 50 something billion dollar funds. And so 
I learned a lot there. So that's one way, you know, so if you have some listeners out there that are looking for real estate jobs and they can get into the institutional real estate world and can learn financial modeling, you know, you create those skills and talk with those people in that world of things and learn from them. And maybe even better than what I did, which is entering that world already knowing that this is just a classroom for you. And years later, and you're preparing for that year, maybe years in advance, you got the relationship set up, maybe a partner that you want to work with, maybe another investor who's invested with that company, but maybe will invest with you too, and start that way. But the other way is also, you know, a lot of investors, they start with a house and they build into multifamily and they create connections and construction relationships, architect relationships, and and they grow and then they start having some friends and family pitch in. They start having, you know, more people pitch in and they start to build a business. And that happens a lot too. And so that's just a different direction or a different origin, I should say. But whatever origin or background you come from, my suggestion is as long as along the way you are creating for yourself skills, knowledge, and experience and pushing yourself on something new. And you're always going to have job and, and success in whatever you work on by creating that, you know, it's not important the actual deals themselves, you know, the, it's what's more important is over the career, you're going to be doing, you're gonna have a long career, you're gonna have 30, 40, 50, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years of career. And, and to be sustainable through that whole entire time, being able to make good decisions that whole entire time, you'll need some knowledge and experience one way or the other. And that's what you should really seek after like gold, whether it's from this podcast or whether it's from other people who the mentors, you know, you probably have people who've come on this podcast, talk about mentors, you know, wherever the source is, that's the most important. And so, and I think about that for myself. So for example, you know, I've done a couple deals and, you know, I might have to do another deal that's going to really push me a little bit, maybe a little bit different deal. And maybe with some different challenges, maybe some more mixed use, maybe it's a product type I'm not used to, but then when I do do that, just like I did do the live work loft project, I can do that again in the future. I, I feel comfortable looking at a deal like that in the future. I did an R&D deal that I just sold in November. I'm like, well, I, I could do that again because I did it, you know, so I can look at it again. And if deals come my way, I'm not necessarily targeting them necessarily, but I'd be glad to do another one. I'm more of a generalist in that aspect, which is probably different from in a lot of developers. And so for even myself, I'm looking at what is something that's a little different, a little bit new, a little bit outside of my comfort zone, maybe a little bit larger. You know, the last student housing deal is a little bit larger than what I was used to, but I did it. So, you know, you're going to have to, everybody's going to have to ask yourself that question. If it's, if it's going to be a house and it's going to be your first deal and you're like, Hey, you got to buy something and whether or not you make a ton of money, you had the experience of acquiring, getting something in contract, doing little repairs on a house or something. That's something you've never done before. So how are you going to you know, learn and do something without doing it. And again, it doesn't matter if you make a lot of money. And that's what I said about, it doesn't really quite matter that the deal itself, did you learn something from that? You know, so that's what I would have to say for your listeners. So basically try different projects and every different project, try to grow a little bit more out of your comfort zone, try something a little bit different to just gain those skills overall. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's a stepping stone journey. Each stepping stone gets you to the next stone. And so I see that in my career, you know, early on, I saw that I was in asset management and then learning with these, this portfolio of projects and then transitioning into transactions and learning from the transactional side of things and even working with investors and fundraising. 
And then stepping into my own deals, though they were smaller deals, it was new for me because now I'm on my own. And that was something new. And then the next deal was a little bit larger and a different product type. So there's something new and different about every stepping stone that I took to get where I'm at today. And I think your listeners really should be thinking about this 10-year horizon. Not that you'll not, I don't think you'll you'll ever know where you're going to be in 10 years. I think, I personally think that's too difficult to predict, but you plan for the next two to three years and then you invest in yourself thinking about yourself in 10 years and you underestimate where you're going to be in 10 years. You know, you can't predict that. But some of the mistakes I see, some of these younger guys, you know, hey, I just came out of school and I want to start this, you know, $10 million fund. I want to have hundreds or thousands of units by the time I'm, you know, this such age. You know, it's good ambition. You know, I, I think we should all have ambition, but more so than those numbers and being able to do something by the time you're such and such young age, it's more the skills, knowledge and experience. That's the journey that's going to get you there in the end. So I, I would say for some people, maybe just... Slow down a little bit because I think you overestimate what you're able to do in the near term and you quite underestimate what you're able to do in the long term. And so just, yeah, be aware of what's happening, what will happen in 10 years and invest in yourself there. But just plan for the next couple of years and look for that next step, that next stepping stone. Perfect. So, Eric, do you have any last tips you'd like to give to our listeners before we end our show today? Yeah, actually, one thing that we didn't touch on is, I guess, just life outside of investing and work and money. And, you know, life is more than all that, the work that you do. You know, I talk to people who are 60, 70 years old, and and those are the people you really want to talk to about later in life, later in career. You know, do they wish they had spent all their time working and making money? You know, they had enough money. But the more important things are, you know, people spending time with your family, the relationships, even if it, even if they are business relationships, investors, and but your friends, your people, you know, creating deep, personal, good relationships. And so I I would just say, you know, life is a little bit more than the work we do. And so I try to maintain that balance by, you know, taking care of my wife and the friends around me, you know, have a few good friends that I talk to and um, treating investors like people, not as dollar signs. And they entrusted capital to you. You know, this is for them. I don't know all their backgrounds, but they worked very hard to get that capital for themselves and then to place it in your hands. So there's a lot of responsibility there. And so treating those relationships with respect, that's just my final parting words is people and things outside of investing and money and work and business. So that's my parting words. Yeah, that's great. So Eric, how can people get in contact with you? Yeah, I think just easily, you know, I'm going to be redoing my website, www.revprojects.com. That's Rev, like revolution, R-E-V, projects with an S at the end, dot com. Revprojects.com. They can see some of my projects. They can contact me, so you can reach out to me there. And yeah, if you have questions, I'm, I'm glad to answer questions about running your own business. If you want to find out about my my work and my projects and, and future opportunities, you can, it's all on my website. And I hope to roll out the website, the new website pretty soon. And that's the easiest way to get to me. Perfect. All right, Eric, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. Cool. Thank you. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. If you want to get into commercial real estate investment deals in the Bay Area, try to work for an investment company first. They'll show you how to analyze deals and will teach you how to present the deals to large investors. You'll be earning a salary while gaining great experience. Learn as much as you can before venturing off on your own. 
When you're finally ready, you need to be able to cut ties with your old company so you can focus on making your business work. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.